Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jimmy Bennett the third. Turns out just some poor Hispanic old man and his little Maltese, like white little puppy, scared shitless. Because I, in a hospital gown, just jump in his fucking passage, just like, go, 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 go! That and more, but before that, do you want to vote on which stories make it into the next Best of Risk episode? Go to risk-show.com slash bestofrisk. Get your votes in by Friday, August 27th at noon Eastern Time. And the storystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training and corporate workshops. That's the storystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Gray Boy behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Off the Rails. In a little bit, we're going to hear an anecdote that was shared by one of you, a listener named Maxfield Orr sent it in. But before that, we're going to hear a little story from Cindy Freeman, who is one of the head instructors at the Story Studio. And she's also the person who reads your pitches <laughs> when you pitch us. Cindy is in charge of the whole pitching process and people just absolutely adore working with her. She is also one of the co-hosts of pretty much the best burlesque show in New York City. 
City Hotsy Totsy Burlesque at hotsytotsyburlesque.com. This is a story Cindy shared in November of 2015 at a Risk Live show in New York. So here is Cindy now with a story we call Friend Request. So I got one of those Facebook friend requests. It was from my high school homeroom crush. Have you ever gotten those, like that person that you have not spoken to in like 20 years? And my first reaction was just like, yeah! Like I, I actually screamed out loud and the roommate I had at the time was like, are you okay? And it, I didn't expect those emotions. Um, I actually didn't expect him even looking me up. I did not expect the rush of pain that would come because honestly, the boy had not actually caused me that much grief. His name was Joshua Hamilton Wallace. In fact, I'm pretty sure he could trace his lineage back to the Mayflower. You would never know it looking at it. He was tall, he was gangly, he had bangs in his eyes and a fondness for Grateful Dead t-shirts. Uh, he actually kind of looked like Bob Denver, only sexy from Gilligan's Island, if you could imagine. Um, but uh, mostly because he was really happy-go-lucky, you know, the way that potheads tend to be. At the time I was 15, I did not know a lot about drugs. All I knew is that this kid, nothing ever phased him, ever. And I was very impressed by that because I was a kid who was always phased. And he, he wanted to know why I was so shy. And I was shy for a couple of reasons. I was shy because I had been a creative kid and really bullied in elementary school and junior high. And I was also from a really loud, screamy Jewish household where nothing I said ever got heard. And so by the time I was 15, I discovered, you know, talking only gets you teased, beaten up, or argued with, why bother? But he wasn't buying it. He was like, no, but when you do talk, you're so funny and you're so pretty and you're, you know, I'm gonna help you out. I'm gonna get you out of your shell. You know, you should try acid. <laughs> and I was like, no, and he's like, okay, well, all right. You know what we should do? I have a bunch of friends. We're gonna go see Star Wars over the weekend. It's a drive-in, you should come. And I loved Star Wars. I did not love the Star Wars Holiday Special, but I did love Star Wars. <laughs> and I figured if these kids were geeky enough to admit to loving Star Wars at age 15, 16, 17, I might get along with them. It was a date. And I get on the date and these kids are awesome. They are funny, they are smart. He must have told them I was shy because the girls are being like really like, you know, like, I like your sweater and what color eyeshadow is this? And like just being really friendly. And then we get to the movie and we're all enjoying it and we're all like cracking jokes and they're getting mine, I'm getting theirs, this is all great. And then the police throw us out. Uh, we weren't drinking, the car next to us was. And the police were like, all the kids have to go. And Josh was being really brave and really cool. But officer, just check a car. And like the officer's like, it's a madhouse. It was like something out of Barney Fife from the you know, Andy Griffith show. 
But, you know, we left and we made fun of it and we got some ice cream and we all sort of joked that we all owed each other half a Star Wars movie and we should do this again. And I had these fantasies, like, I would have these new kids in school and how cool this would be. And I must have been overwhelmed by the warmth of it, the coolness of it, the fact that he kissed me in front of all of his friends in the car. And when I got to my front door, I realized I'd left my purse in the car. So I have to knock on my door. And my mother opens it up. She's a perfect helmet of blonde hair and like something out of a Woody Allen movie. Woody Allen wrote my mother. And she looks at me and she's like, where are your keys? And I start getting the key lecture because I'm famous for losing the keys. She goes, key, you know, head if it wasn't put on you. You, 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 the purse, it was from Bloomingdale's. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> And from behind her, my dad comes out of the kitchen looking like Saddam Hussein in Paisley pajamas. And he starts shouting, you know, my kids are so stupid. Why are you so stupid? You're so stupid. And I was just like, for my screaming family, this is, this is more than usual. And my dad has this crazy temper that I, I just like to avoid. It kind of scares me. And so I just do what I always do at the time. I'm, I'm stupid. You're right. Yes, you named it. And I go to my room to get away from them and read a dragon ride of Pern. But I can hear them and there's this conversation that's in the kitchen about the kids and my dad's screaming, what's wrong with my kids? And what he really means is what's wrong with my brother Will. My brother Will was two years older than me, 17, and was AWOL from the army for the second time. He had gone in the army at age 16 because he was a troubled kid and he was thrown out of two high schools for beating people up. ADHD, hyperactivity, all that stuff before it was the fad to be diagnosed with that. In fact, he was on Ritalin when it was an experimental drug. And the teachers didn't know what to do with him. And they just, you know, he, I think when he got to junior high, decided like, you know, if nobody can see good in me, I'll show him what a bad seed is. And he would do things like he got thrown out of Hebrew school for drawing schwa stickers on blackboards. Oh no, he was, he, and he got thrown out of two high schools for beating people up. And he, you know, my dad said, you know, whatever he's done, I did worse. I was in a gang when I was in the 1930s. I broke a Catholic kid's legs, you know, you know. Whatever my brother was doing, my dad claimed he, he understood. They were from the same cloth and it was the army that had straightened him out. And so he got my brother early into the army. But my brother really, what I think he needed was breakdancing. What he got was a uniform and marching and they sent him to Texas and he hated it. So he would gamble, like play poker, raise enough money to get a one-way ticket back to Boston and hang out with his hoodlum friends, AWOL. And evidently they must have had a big fight when I was on my date because, you know, my dad was in the kitchen and, he, and then they were like down the hall into the bedroom and I'm hearing things like, court-martial, jail for years, won't be able to help him. And then my mother says, oh, oh, honey, please, no, put that away. So I don't know what this is, but it seems like it's time to check it out. So I go in the bedroom, and my father had taken out a World War souvenir. It was a Magnum revolver, and he's loading it with bullets. I never seen him do anything like this. Now, he has a crazy temper. My brother and him are of the same cloth. And I'm looking at this, and I say, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to shoot your brother in the leg, and then I'm going to call the army to get him. <laughs> and in my first act of rebellion, I just look at my father and say, well, that's stupid. And no, you're not. And he says, he literally says, your brother's unstable with the gun. <laughs> 
and I say, and you are the one with the gun. And I do it with a flourish, and I run back into my room. And my dad comes chasing after me, and he bashes open my door, which I have slammed shut, and he's still got the gun. He's like, I'm not gonna kill him. I'm gonna maim him. And I think he saw this on Roots, you know? And it's like, I'm gonna maim him in the leg, and then they're gonna come and get him. And I'm like, when was the last time did you shoot a gun? Like, World War II? Like, what if you miss? Now, this evidently makes a dent. My dad just goes, and he goes running back into his room and I go running back after him and I'm, we're kind of arguing about this which is basically me this is stupid, what you're planning is stupid and my mother is just sort of sitting there letting us wind it out like we're a couple of two year olds having a tantrum and just like maybe we'll exhaust ourselves but eventually she's seeing he's not getting exhausted and she says let's go in the kitchen and she takes him away which at this point the phone rings and I pick it up and it's Josh the kid who wanted to be my savior. And I'm like, I don't actually have to be in this house because my brother is gonna be coming home any second and my brother's temper is as bad as my dad's and this could turn into a bloodbath. And I just like, Josh, oh my God, um, 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 I don't know if you could come back and get me. Uh, my father has a gun and he's threatening to shoot my brother in the leg. He doesn't wanna kill him, but he could. And I just don't, it could get really bad. You don't even stop at the house. There's a white house down the street. And if you just like stop there, I'll climb out my window. And, I, and Josh goes, um, you left your purse in my car. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, this is really intense. Like, this is, you know, I just got my learner's permit. I don't know if my parents would allow me to. And it's like my mother comes in and says, what are you doing? And she grabs the phone out of my hand and says, this is family business. And says, Cindy can't talk right now. You should be calling me tomorrow. It's very late. And hangs up the phone, glares at me, and she's out the door. <laughs> Okay, so what do I do? Um, because, you know, it's, I figure I can call the police and then I think of Barney Fife at the movie theater and that could be a shootout between him and my dad on the front lawn. As far as I can say, what can I do so that nobody dies? And I decide, all right, I have a plan. I go in my room, I turn off the light, I crawl into bed, fully dressed, open my window and the screen so I could jump out at any moment. I think I'm asleep, but I'm just <laughs> gonna get my brother at the pass. I hear my mom and my dad and they're calming down and my dad's, my mom's saying, you know, just, just, you know, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Just go to sleep. Just go to sleep and please put that back in the box. Thank you. And it's all silent except for my heart and all the adrenaline in my system. And about 2 a.m. I can hear a car. There's loud music. There's his friends and their loud rebellious voices and he gets out and I call him to the window. I'm like, and I tell him everything that's going on and he goes, what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I'm going to wake him up. And I'm like, no! No! Gun! There was a gun! And he's like, okay, fine. Jeez. Thanks, man. And he's gone. He shows up the next morning at about 8 a.m. in the sunny light of day. And he walks into the kitchen and my father's drinking coffee and my brother gets like a glass of orange juice and sits down. And they have a lice friendly little chat, all calm. And later that day, my father brings him back to an army base and he goes back to Texas and he never went AWOL again. Monday, I get back to school and uh, there's Josh in homeroom and I'm like, hey. And he doesn't approach me, I approach him. I say about Friday, I'm sorry. And he's like, yeah, that, that was intense. And that's all he says, like he doesn't say, are you okay? He just sort of looks at me and kind of backs up a bit and kind of walks away. And he never did ask, 
me again why I was so shy, and he never asked me out again. And I wanted him to so bad, so bad, the lengths I would go to try to impress him again. The, the, whatever he was reading, you know, if it was Stephen Donaldson or, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I had to read it too. The outfits I would choose, the lengths, it was like it became an absolute obsession. Like even when I got into college, there would be parties in my neighborhood on Thanksgiving break and I would like find the houses and I would crash them knowing he might be there. And I'd find him and I actually even convinced him to make out with me twice. And it was vampire-like, like I could not get enough. And there was a certain guilt-added spewing as he would take out a picture of his girlfriend from college and show me. And it all kind of stopped when he suggested maybe we should sleep together. And I was like, that's not what I want. And he was like, well, what do you want? Christ, I don't understand you. What do you want? And I didn't know. Like, all I wanted was to him to like me the way he had liked me before. And it never happened. And I gave up. And there he is on Facebook. And I accepted the friendship. <laughs> Thank you. So I was sitting in the living room of Therese, a tutoring client that I had taken on in the past couple of months as part of my ASL program at the local community college. And Therese and I had been working together for a few months now. And this particular day we were practicing sign language and I asked her, what made you want to study this in the first place? She initially said, well, Max, I am interested in working with students perhaps high school age who have gone through some kind of trauma that's my goal and at that time we had gotten to know each other pretty well i was this 19 year old awkward queer kid who was not yet out as trans and she was more of a mom aged woman she was very friendly very earnest she had these two big dogs that were always jumping all over me and i always had a really good time going over to her home to tutor her I got to know her family, I met her husband and even her dad at one point, this kind of polite guy in a suit and bow tie, and I was feeling like she was letting me in, in a way, into who she was on a deeper level, and I felt like we had formed a bond at that point. We were both a little bit lonely, I think. We kind of needed this connection in a way. So she says, I wanted to work with students who have gone through a trauma and I pressed her a little more. I said, interesting, what made you want to focus on this? And without even hesitating, Therese turns to me and says, well, I want to help kids who have gone through a similar thing that I went through because when I was young, my dad killed my mom. I think at that moment, I just felt it physically before I knew how to respond verbally. I felt sort of that fight or flight response where 
that third option, freeze, I've recently read a little more about and looking back, that is absolutely what happened to me. I completely froze. I felt all the sound sort of quiet in the room. My body got cold and I didn't say anything right away. I kind of just sat back and let her keep talking. She gave me a few details saying things like, well, I had gotten home from school that day and my mother's purse was on the counter, but she wasn't there, which I thought was strange. And I remember looking for her and then a couple weeks later, they found her body. So I don't know exactly how I responded. I'm not sure I said much at that time. I remember distinctly feeling like, I'm six feet away from the door. Should I just get up and make a run for it? I could be in my car in a couple minutes. But I, I sat with her and I think it's partly because we had that relationship and she trusted me with this information about her. So she mentioned that it took a long time, but she eventually did forgive her father. And she said, you know, different members of my family have gone through this in different ways, but this is where we are now. I did continue to tutor her, but I made a point of doing it in public spaces. I don't think I ever said anything directly. I didn't really feel capable of bringing it up again, and she certainly didn't bring it up again, but we had a good relationship even after that. I remember I moved to New York a few months later, and she sent me a really sweet card. Even though we haven't been in touch, and that was about eight years ago now, I've been thinking about her this year, especially the summer of 2020. I, at that point, hadn't spoken to my own father in about three years, and I was thinking about her perspective on forgiveness and on what that looked like within her own family, and I started to think about my own journey with my family and with what that might look like for my own father. And at that time, it was Father's Day weekend, and I just found myself picking up the phone and calling him saying, Hey, Dad, I know it's been a while, but uh, how's it going? And I think I had really put so much thought into what that conversation would look like leading up to that point. But when I decided to do it, it just felt easy. It felt right. And now we are navigating this new relationship. And I think going through it has helped me to think a lot about what forgiveness means for everyone individually and how different it can look depending on your situation. And I'm not trying to compare my father to a murderer, definitely not. But I think uh, in this case, you know, my dad struggled with addiction and he was absent. And we had a very tumultuous relationship in my teens, especially. And I never thought I would get to a point where forgiveness was possible for us. And I'm sure Therese felt the same way with her father, but I don't want to judge her decision to forgive him. And I think our capacity to forgive as people can really surprise us at times. It can mean something different for different people.
thinking her thing Your mama didn't know that I was there I tried to swallow my pride When you left me lonely outside And I didn't know you would never show me So comfortable with white lies Looking like a fool What else could I do After all we've been through It's too hurt But I forgive you This is Risk. This is Leon Bridges behind me now, and we just heard from Maxfield Orr, who you can find on Instagram at Dog Daddies with the O as a zero. Don't forget that if you want to vote on which stories will make it into the next Best of Risk episode, just go to risk-show.com/slash best of risk and get your votes in by friday august 27th at noon eastern standard time and folks september 15th is the next risk live show at caveat in new york city 7 p.m eastern new york city law mandates that caveat must require proof of vaccination we're also live streaming these shows so you can get a ticket to either the live stream or the in-person show at risk show.com slash tour i want to give a shout out to our newest patreon members giving 25 dollars or more per month they're darren k uno and gretchen nothhaus oh my goodness thank you so much to both of you it's no exaggeration to say that the support of our fans is the difference between the show going on or folding our patreon is our life raft right now and if you become a member or raise your donation over at patreon.com risk you'll have tons of bonus content to hear and if you want to make a one-time donation that's at paypal.me slash risk show Our final story on this week's episode is an extraordinary one with quite a history behind it. What you're about to hear is the live recording that we made when Jimmy Bennett told this story in Austin, Texas at a risk show in February of 2016. This is one of those stories that created a lot of discussion behind the scenes here at risk. For a long time, we thought, oh, maybe this story would work better if it was a radio style story with music and sound design because it's very cinematic. But when we started to work on that, I felt like I was directing Jimmy too authoritatively. I guess is how you would say that. I was trying to get him to say things the way I think I might had I gone through similar experiences rather than the way that the person who lived them made sense of them. And I, I can say a little bit more about that at the end of the show, but you're in for quite a ride here. You can find Jimmy on Instagram at xxloveglassxx, and here he is now with a story we call Things That Go Awry. 
So this story takes place when I'm 24 years of age. At this point in my life, I had lived a pretty full life, a pretty adventurous life. I traveled a lot. I'd experienced a lot of different cultures and lived at many different places. And a lot of my friends would always say, man, Jimmy, you have a life. You're fucking living the dream. What a lot of people didn't know is behind closed doors, I was actually kind of sad and um, something was missing. I was a seeker. I was looking for something. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was constantly searching and never finding it and trying all different things, you know, hallucinogens of all sorts, just really seeking for something and I never quite found it. And at 24 years of age, my best friend at the time, someone that I knew, respected, I loved, knew me better than anybody I know, he suggested I go meet this family in Colorado. They live in the mountains, they live off the land, and uh, they're super chill people, you'll like them, come check it out. So I did. We're traveling to Colorado for my first time, and it's fucking beautiful, the mountains are amazing. And something was happening to me on this trip, like on the drive, I was in the back seat by myself, my friends were in the front seat driving, and I was trying to keep it to myself because it was pretty embarrassing because I just kept crying. Like these fits of tears just kept coming over me and they weren't sad or they weren't happy. It was just like something was happening to me. I, I couldn't quite explain it. We finally get to this place. It's in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this national forest. Can't see anything but land for miles and it was beautiful. And I finally meet the head of the household, this fellow named Chris. You know, we, we meet, we shake hands and we lock eyes. And my buddy was like, you know, these are just some cool people and this guy's really nice dude. He helped me out. He wasn't like, oh, this is some crazy medicine man that's going to melt your world and change your life forever and turn it upside down. So I shake this fellow's hand and I meet him. I look him dead in the eyes and I shit you not. Like we're outside, the mountains, the background, the scenery, it just starts to disappear. It starts to melt around us and dissipate and it's just him and I lock eye to eye. And I felt at that same time that me, myself, this ego, this person that I had created in the world was beginning to melt at the same time as well. I, I had like this third person, bird's eye point of view of who I was and who I had become. And although I had good intentions, I was a little ashamed and I didn't like it. And I just began to cry in front of this stranger, just like uncontrollably, like puddle of tears. There's a lot of people around, like at least a dozen of people around at the time. Nobody acted like it was weird. Everybody just held a safe space for me to break down in that moment. And uh, spent several days with this family out in the mountains. They had an awesome garden. They were growing their own medicine. This little 12-year-old girl's like taking me on hikes and showing me all these edible plants and teach me all these things I'd never known. And like all the things I was looking for at the time, I'd always want to know what that communal living was like. This is what I was looking for. And for the first time in my life, I mean, I knew friends, family, I knew I had love out there, but for the first time in my life, I felt like I was seeing and experiencing genuine love. It felt like home. And I decided that's where I wanted to move there. I wanted to live with these people. I wanted to see what this was all about, you know? I wanted to know what the fuck the melting was about, you know? Like, so <laughs> I go to the head of the household before I'm leaving, I go to Chris, and I'm like, I, before I could even spit the words out of my mouth, he's like, you're more than welcome. Come back as quick as possible. So then that's it. I'm headed back to Texas. I just got to tie up some loose ends, quit my job. I'm moving back to Colorado. I feel like I've got the rest of my life ahead of me. I'm just like fucking stoked, feeling like a different person. When I'm back in Texas, things are changing for me. I'm, I'm feeling a little more open. I'm hugging people a little more. And I start partying a lot less and start reading more and meditating more. 
And it was just this gradual progression of this like intense consciousness that I can't even describe. It just slowly started to progress. And before you know it, I'm communicating with dragonflies and squirrels and trees. And at nighttime, I'm seeing spirits. Like as vivid as you people are here, we're talking like an antelope turning into a native, turning into a tree. And just like, when it's happening, but I'm not freaking out about it. Actually, I'm not afraid and I'm, I'm just kind of going with it. I'm just like, fuck yeah, I'm like leveling up. I'm like, <laughs> nobody else can see this shit, but I can and I got, you know, I know I am like telepathic. I know what everybody's thinking. I'm good energy, bad energy, how to deflect the whole nine. Fucking crazy shit, but not crazy to me. And all of a sudden I'm in the hospital. I hear the doctor talking to my mom and He's like, we, you know, we tested his blood and all we found in him is ergot. This word ergot, I remember the same. And he's explaining to my mother that ergot is found in LSD and that I'm probably just tripping and I'll come out of it, whatever, such and such. They leave the room. And I'm like, fuck, I didn't take any acid. I'm feeling like superhuman Christ-like savior right now. And these people don't know what's going on, but I know what's going on. So I'm going to get the fuck out of here. I have to escape. This is it, you know, no, everybody's left the room, fucking, and like I said, I was superhuman, I had no pain at the time, I wasn't feeling any pain, and so I just fucking ripped the IV out of my arm, walked to the door, I don't even look around, I just only focus on my feet the whole time, I knew when to go slow, when to go fast, and I got exactly out of the hospital, right as the doors closed behind me, so anybody chasing me and screaming at me in the hospital didn't catch me, and then I'm outside, and by this time, it's nighttime, I can't really see that well, and there are people coming at me from all directions. I can't see their faces because it's nighttime. It's just like black faces and they're screaming, they're yelling, they're coming at me. I'm gone, you know, I'm, I'm bolting. And these giant, I mean, we're talking grown men, paramedics, police officers, whoever they were, grab onto me and latch onto me. And in this evolution of consciousness I was experiencing, the night prior to this hospital trip, I stumbled into an Aikido dojo and met this 63-year-old woman who taught me the craziest energetic martial arts I'd ever experienced in my life. I'm, and she was, and it was like, it was not cool because she kept making these Star Wars references and I was just like, what is going on? This old lady's like throwing me all over the place and she's like, oh, are you okay? You know, it was, it was fucking crazy. But in this moment, I was, it was so fresh in my mind, these grown men grabbing me just the slightest of ease. I just like simple touch of the wrist, throw them off me and I'm gone. And I mean, I literally, I had scabs on the tops of my feet from the pressure of my feet dragging from these grown men trying to stop me. That's how bad they didn't want me to continue my path. I see a barrier. I jump it. I see a wall. I hurdle it only to realize, holy fuck, I am like six stories above the ground right now. I'm falling to my death. The ground is rushing up at me. And it wasn't like, oh, your life flashes before your eyes. It's just like, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> That's how it is. Every, every second is just fuck, 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 fuck. And right before I hit the ground, <laughs> I remember the old lady, like 15 minutes at the beginning of class, was all falling, was break falls, falling properly. This way to envision your fall perfectly, release the force of the fall through the palms of your hands before your head hits you're fine, no matter how high you fall from. <sighs> it fucking works. I'm standing right here. So, <laughs> right before. 
right before I hit the ground, I envision the fall, I release the force of the fall through my palms, and I don't skip a beat. I do one tumble, back on my feet, and I'm running. I'm gone. <laughs> I see a car parked on the side of the road with the headlights on, and I'm like, that's it. That's my getaway car. Never seen the car in my life, but I know that's my getaway car, and they're there for me. Turns out it was just some poor Hispanic old man and his little Maltese, like white little puppy, scared shitless. Because I, in a hospital gown, just jumping his fucking past, he's just like, go, 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 go! He doesn't go. The paramedics and police and everybody that are chasing me finally catch up to me. This is the Brackenridge Hospital. I jumped off of the helipad. Which, if you go there today, they have built a barricade. <laughs> Nobody else can jump from it. That was me. So, needless to say, something's wrong with me, and I, I end up in the mental hospital. That was fucking intense, you know? I gave them a little bit of a fuss when I checked in, tried to escape a little bit, tried to jump through some windows, the whole nine. And then I remember this needle going into my arm, and then it was nighty-night nurse for a while. So, until this one morning, like, I'm just out of it. I'm in this foggy haze every day. Every morning I wake up, I almost faint. And I've never fainted in my life. It was, like, super intense, this just out-of-it feeling. And on this one morning, I almost faint, but this time I actually fall, and some people catch me, and this fucking dude comes up, and he's, like, shoving pills in my mouth. Oh, take this, take that. About the third or fourth pill, I'm, like, finally spit it out. I'm like, what the fuck? You're not, you're just, I'm a human being. You're shoving pills down my fucking throat. I don't even know what you're giving me. Get the fuck away from me. And dude's just like, oh, all right. He just left. So about that day, I realized where I was <laughs> and decided to stop taking the medication. It was pretty easy. They weren't really paying attention. Just slipped on the thumb, spit it out. And I'm in there for a while with a bunch of crazy people. And I know I'm not crazy, but uh, <laughs> I also was still on this super high, like super connected. Still, I mean, you think I was connecting with squirrels before. The squirrels in the mental hospital here in Austin on 45th Street, they hang out over there. That's like their spot to chill. I was so open and felt like love. I felt amazing. I wasn't listening to any of this bullshit these people were saying. And I was connecting with these crazy people. I mean, they were crazy, but they were like beautiful idiot savants like still crazy like you know <laughs> singing me songs that are bringing me tears to my eyes because their voice is so beautiful and then one minute hitting a girl with a milk carton and stabbing herself in the vagina with a, a macaroni and cheese cross that she made in arts and craft class that's a little crazy but I connected with all these people and they all I don't know why they felt safe but they opened up to me and I opened up to them and they all just suffered from a lot of trauma, you know, in their life. Most of it was sexual abuse, physical abuse. You know, most of these stories would bring tears to your eyes. They did mine. And I've always been an empath, so I was just there with them. And it was really beautiful. And eventually, my best friend comes to visit me in the hospital. Same one that took me to Colorado. And he's a super ninja. Somehow, he just fucking walks my dog right into the hospital. Like, he owns the place, so I get to see my dog for the first time. I'm like... And at one point, he just kind of grabs me, and he's like, look, you're drawing a lot of unwanted attention to yourself. You need to stop telling these people what you're seeing, what you think, and what you feel, and you got to act normal. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just grabs me by the face and looks me right in the eye, and he's like, 
act normal. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, okay, cool, I got this. So for several days after that, I just agreed with everything that these dumbass fucking doctors said because at this point, they'd already made up their minds. I was paranoid schizophrenic. I had manic depression. They had diagnosed me with bipolar and attention deficit disorder. They had me on lithium, an experimental antidepressant that wasn't even on the market yet, and a couple other things that I can't even remember. This story happened over five years ago. And they made up their mind. You know, I'm sitting in this room full of these certified doctors, and I'm telling them what's going on. You know, I'm a normal person in the world. I don't know what happened to me, but all of a sudden this, is, this has happened, and you know, I don't need to be on these meds. I'm not crazy like you say. I'm like, well, what we have here in our paperwork, it says that you're getting ready to leave the state of Texas and move to Colorado and live with some people that you've never met before in your entire life. And I'm like, yeah, that's the, that's the plan. And they're like, well, normal people don't just do that with their life. So there's something definitely wrong with you. And even saying that right now, and since having talked about the story, every time I say that, it sounds so fucking stupid. <laughs> You're a fucking doctor and those words just came out of your mouth. So I start acting normal. I get out. I don't even tell my family that I get out. I just can't handle this too much. All this just, and everybody thought something was wrong with me and everybody wanted me to get on meds. And I just took off to the only place I knew I could. This place in Colorado, the first place that I felt safe, that I felt genuine love. And I went there to come back from this, to realize that I wasn't Jesus and that I wasn't here to save the world. And like, just come back to reality a little bit on my own. And I know what you're all thinking. You know, I went out to some hippie commune and we fucking party balls and it was like raging. Not really, you know. We had plenty of ganja, but that's, we grew our own food. Everybody had jobs. I was the dish bitch for a long time until I came out of it and could finally start working. Like, and it was a safe space, you know. If you, you were called out on your bullshit, even if, you know, you were crazy, you were still called out on your shit. And it was just like a good place. And I, you know, slowly started to come back, slowly started to come back. And I still didn't know what happened to me. I was so lost. I'm like, what the fuck happened? How did that happen? And I had read some articles and stuff, and I fit the exact profile of white males between the age of 24 and 26 that snap because of this kind of childhood and this kind of drug addiction. Blah, 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 blah. I fit that fucking profile to a T, and I was like, well, shit, maybe I did just snap. Who knows? But then I remember that word ergot that that doctor said, the only thing in my blood system. I type it in the computer. Bam, ergot. How LSD was discovered. It's a parasite that grows on ryegrass. Fucking the Salem witches, they weren't witches. They were just the community of people that ate a bad batch of rye bread and started to trip balls. Uh, an evil baker was like dosing his patrons in the 70s. Like, this exists. It's how LSD was discovered. It's LSA. It grows on ryegrass. And then I remember that 12-year-old girl and that, <laughs> that fucking plant walk that we went on. And I was like, oh, shit, that ryegrass. The fucking nature's butter that she kept talking about. She taught me how to eat it and everything. <laughs> and then I remember the field of ryegrass here in Texas that I walked past every day on the way to work and was like, oh, there's that ryegrass. Let me take a fucking chew on this a little bit. In the right environment, ryegrass grows a parasite called ergot. I was fucking tripping balls. Didn't know it, though. <laughs> and uh, that happened.
I'm not saying we should just like burn down the pharmaceutical companies and like everybody be hippies and plant medicine is the way, whatever. I'm not Jesus. Maybe I am. Definitely not though. And I definitely, you know, maybe I do have some of those tendencies those doctors said, but that's me. Let me feel that. Let me be that. Don't give me this pill that makes me feel nothing. You know, I live 99% of my life as a normal human being. And I got to experience a small portion of life as a paranoid schizophrenic, like completely insane, which is what I wanted from a youth. You know, I always looked up to like Hunter S. Thompson and Daniel Johnson and like all these people that went insane. And so it kind of made sense. But I got to experience that insanity in two different venues in this system that wanted to tell me I was wrong and I had problems and forced me to take this medication and just kind of drown me out and put me in this box. And then in this other environment where it was just unconditional love is the best word I can use for it. You're just accepted. You're just you. You're just free. I get to figure my shit out on my own. And I feel like the luckiest fucking person in the world because it's because of that place. It's because of love that I'm standing here today talking to all of you instead of making a cross out of macaroni and cheese in arts and craft. I love y'all. Thank you. They're trying to endorse the reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse, but the town has no need to be nervous. The ghost of Bell Star, she hands down her wits to Jezebel and Nun. She violently knits a bald wig for Jack the Ripper, who sits at the head of the Chamber of Commerce. Mama's in a factory, she ain't got no shoes Daddy's in the alley, he's looking for food I'm in the kitchen where the tombstone blues uh, That is all <laughs> That is all for this week's episode, folks uh, this is Bob Dylan behind me now, and we just heard from Jimmy Bennett III. I wanted to play this song, Tombstone Blues, by Dylan. It's from his 1965 album, Highway 61 Revisited. It's an album that changed the course of history. It was when Dylan switched from folk music to rock and roll. And this song, it's a surreal and kind of madcap, Alice in Wonderland-ish kind of song. It's sometimes interpreted to be about America's insane war in Vietnam, but others just interpret it to be about America's chaotic nature in general. So in the spirit of the song being about things being off the rails, the drummer, Bobby Gregg, deliberately allowed himself to veer and swerve in and out of rhythmic timing so that the whole song <laughs> kind of feels like a car that is falling apart 
while lightly hitting the guardrails on the highway and kind of skittering across the lanes. And Dylan found that drumming hilarious. The band had to keep re-recording this song because Dylan would burst out laughing at the drummer or the rest of the band would just lose the rhythm and the song would just fall to pieces. So for the final take... Dylan had a barrier set up so that he couldn't see Bobby Gregg drumming and he could stay focused. And although this final version of the song is ramshackle as hell, they made it through and it's an all-time classic. The reason I'm talking about that is because sometimes when I'm working on a story with a person... Their particular life experiences are so surprising, or so erratic, or so overwhelming, that trying to shoehorn it all into a standard story structure with a simple, clear, controlling idea at the end, it feels forced. It feels like the story actually kind of needs to be as freewheeling and roughshod as it wants to be. If you've ever heard the story of Ram Das, for example, how he discovered LSD at Harvard in the 60s and, and then went to live as a barefoot beggar in India, searching in the mountains for a guru. I mean, it's an amazing story. It's an inspiring story. <laughs> but it's also bonkers. <laughs> There's many moments in Ram Dass's story where I find myself saying, wait, you did what? What were you thinking? You know, these spiritual journey stories can get pretty surreal. So in all the back and forth, when Jimmy and I were first workshopping this story for the Austin, Texas show, and then later, for a possible radio-style version, I kept saying things to Jimmy like, Wait a minute. Is it possible you were having a genuine, bipolar, sort of manic episode? And the ergot from the rye was really just a very minor factor... I mean, if anything, maybe it just triggered a little bit more of a schizoid sort of thing already happening in your brain chemistry. I believe this is the second time we've had a story on the show where someone is in a mental institution and has to kind of trick the doctors in order to get out of there, like in the movie Shock Corridor. So I think in both cases... The storyteller might have felt like, okay, some folks who hear this are going to think I'm just crazy, but here goes nothing. But in retrospect now, now that I've had some time away from being in the weeds of this story, no pun intended, when I listen back to this Austin, Texas version, I feel like, okay, yeah, I'm hearing Jimmy clearly and honestly telling the story precisely as he experienced it, you know? And who would know the truth of his experience better? I asked Jimmy if there's anything he, he might want to add 
all these years later. And he wrote back, 11 years later, I'm back in Colorado with Chris, living just 10 miles from where we first met. We're building a sustainable retreat center and have been traveling back and forth to Peru to study medicinal plants of the Amazon and to educate others. So, kudos to all of that. Folks, don't forget to pitch us your winter holiday stories or your Halloween stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Remember to follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a place to talk about the show with others, as is our subreddit, Risk Podcast. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? I'm currently consulting someone about an art project of hers and someone else with a YouTube series that he's creating and someone else with the podcast that they're creating. Storytelling skills can come into play in so many ways in your social life, in the self-work that you do, your therapy, in job interviews or pitch presentations or wedding toasts or whatever it might be, you can find me at kevinallison.com. Well, I've talked so long that now we're on Cheryl Crow's version of Tombstone Blues. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Uh, that is all. <laughs>